This is episode 85 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Good day, and thanks for joining me. Each of us wears different masks every day, whether that mask is being a mother, a creative person, a brother, or a manager. Knowing when we're wearing the right one and which ones not to reveal is key to our success and happiness. Dr. Atira Charles joins me today to jam about how the mask we wear relate to authenticity, vulnerability, productivity, and stress. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Atira Charles. Dr. Charles is an Associate Professor of Management in the School of Business and Industry at Florida A&M University and CEO of Think Actuality, LLC. Through her research, consulting, and training facilitation, Atira seeks to shed light on how individuals manage their differences while striving for personal, professional, and organizational success. Specializing in racial and gender identity management in the workplace, Atira provides workshops, coaching, and consultative services that aim to build more authentic, inclusive, and engaging work experiences. She has been featured in Black Enterprise Magazine and Essence, and has won numerous awards such as the Florida State University Guardian of the Flame Award and the FAMU Outstanding 125 Alumni Award. Her most important professional accomplishment is doing all of this work with three beautiful children under the age of eight. Dr. C, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm excited about where this conversation goes. Same here. Same here. All right. You've done a lot of brilliant work and a lot of it focuses or excuse me, a lot of it explores how we wear many masks in life. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of um, Du Bois, like the veil, the double veil and things like that, that, mm-hmm. that there's a rich body of work. But so you can catch us all up. What do you mean by wearing many masks and how does it, how does that affect the ways that we live our lives? Okay, so first, thanks for inviting me on. I'm really excited to be here with you, Charlie. Um, So when I first started doing this work, it was really connected to this idea of what are people feeling on a daily basis? Like, that's the general question I've always had. I was that kid on the playground that sat and observed people and watched people or said something to get a response. I've always been this people um, analyzer. And so when I decided I wanted to get my PhD, I knew I wanted to get it in something that was related to kind of the psychology of people, but mm-hmm. within a space, right? So organizations and anything's an organization, our relationships, our family, where we work. And so as I started dissecting that, I realized, you know what? Everything I hear when I talk to people is about this idea of how can I be me where I am at all times? And so that started to be a constant theme that I started thinking about, thinking about, and it took me to this um, idea of identity, right? This is really the human experience of all the identities that we have. And as I started pushing further into that, I said, you know what, this isn't simply about the identities that we have. It's really about what masks are we wearing at different points in time. And that's really the big dilemma, right? What to hide, what to conceal, what to reveal, what to show when, to who and why. And so that's when I reference the mask, I'm referencing that as a metaphor for all of the different identities we have, all the roles, all the expectations, all the everything that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And so I believe one of the interesting things about wearing masks is at the same time you recognize that you're wearing a mask and it creates, 
it creates an interesting meta um, meta tension because sometimes you're wearing a mask and you know you're wearing a mask, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're wearing a mask and it's like this is not the right mask for the right scenario. Or sometimes you recognize that you, um, you know, when we look at sociological projection and things like that, sometimes mm-hmm. you show up with completely the wrong mask. You're thinking that you needed one mask. Right. right. And you know, there's different ways that can go. So someone can be wearing a mask and they don't even know they're wearing one. That's the most toxic. Right. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But then there's the, oh, I'm wearing a mask for this strategic reason. And then there's the you think you're wearing it for a strategic reason and you just have the wrong one on. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with that, so, so that we can bring it and make it uh, more, more tangible, like what, what do you mean by mask? Is this like I'm a mom or I'm a, um, I'm a faculty, you know, I'm on the faculty of this prestigious institution or is it like I'm a podcaster? Like give me an idea of what these Okay, so I'll use me. I'll use myself as an example. Okay. So I'm a mom, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a wife. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a sorority sister. I'm a professor. I'm a consultant. I'm an entrepreneur, right? I'm all of these. I'm a speaker. All of these different things. And at any given point in time, all of those have a different set of demands and a different set of expectations. So for example, we're recording this right now, but in an hour, my kids will be storming through the door and then I'll have to ship from being, oh, Atira, the expert on masks and identity into like mommy mode. And so that shift, sometimes time forces us to shift when we're not emotionally and mentally ready to shift. Like maybe I need some debrief time or maybe I need a moment to myself. And in that space is where we have some of that emotional and psychological tension, right? And when we're forced to shift and we're not ready. And that's where anxiety and stress presents itself a lot too. Well, this is really interesting because, for instance, if we talk about the mask between different relationships for, and I think I mentioned this on the show about, about the way in which spaces actually get us to context shift or mask shift, right? right? So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking to my wife, Angela, and we're hanging out and we have sort of our honey language and we're, you know, so and so forth, right? And we're doing that on the way to go meet friends. But the second we step out of the car, right? We're no longer in like honey lovey mode. We're like right. in this sort of weird, like social space where we don't right. use the same language, mm-hmm. but we don't consciously, it's not like we step out of the car. It's like, we're no longer wearing that mask. Like right. the mask just falls off and we, te- we assume another one. Right. Um, and it's this subconscious process that occurs, right? Where we just, we're just responding. And one of the reasons that I started doing this work was because people are so reactive that we're not proactive. And the reactivity is really what's creating some of this frustration that, you know, people are feeling in their everyday lives. So um, the interesting thing about masks is that some of them are made up for us. And some of them we make up ourselves. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And some, well, I mean, I think that's really the, the, is there a third option? Well, no, it's either we're self-defined or we're other defined. Right. (laughs) Um, And, the thing about mask is that um, at least I'm not the expert here. So I'll let you riff on this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really, I mean, it matters how the mask is originated. Mm-hmm. It really does because it, how do you take it off? Depends upon whether you're, you're the one that defined it or somebody else. Right. defined it. But how it was originated doesn't necessarily give it any additional weight to how one might behave in any given scenario. Right. So there's two things. So there's certain identities were born into, right? So I am a black woman. Like I was born that way. That's what I am. No matter what I think, that's how the world will respond to me, right? 
Um, but then there are certain life experiences I had where I was defined by others. So for example, my mom, she's an educator. She's super, super success driven. That was something that she pushed on me and my brothers very strongly. Like we achieve and we succeed in this family. Like that's what it means to be a Brown. That's what you are. That's my maiden name, Brown. That's what it means to be a Brown. And that's what we do. So growing up, that's a mask that I took on. I believed and I started living that life. Right. But what if a day came where I was like, wait a second, like, do I really want to be this much of a achiever? Is this who I am? But I've now lived all these years in that space, right? And I think that's why a lot of people feel bound because they've had all these masks and identities placed on them that they have not self-defined. And that's why I always tell people why adulting is so complicated, right? <laughs> because it's really not until we hit this adult space where we start flushing all of this out. And um, I think that's one of the reasons that I enjoy doing this work so much because I get to hear people's narratives and coach people on the experience of the wait, who am I? I thought it was this, but then I want to be that. And where are the gaps and where's the alignment and that sort of thing. Yeah. Adulting is very hard. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> well, you bring up an interesting point because um, for instance, I'll take um, our experience as minorities. Like we were born a certain color, right? right. It is what it is. Can't change that. <laughs> um and in some ways that causes attention because we can think about sort of the social narrative of what it means to be a black person, mm-hmm. which might not be the same as the color of your skin. Right. Um, and at the same time, like it could be very challenging because people assume because of the color of your skin, right. This, this native, this thing that you're born with that mm-hmm. you are going to behave and act a certain way. Right. right. And so you have an option. I'm going to behave and act that certain way or I'm not. And either one like has repercussions, has consequences to it. You know? Right. And the interesting thing about identity is I, tell, I always tell people it can operate two ways. Right. It can either be a source of affirmation and pride. Like I feel good being blank or it could be a source of threat. Like, ooh, I'm blank. And I think we tend to attach one or the other to certain identities. And one of the things I always try to let people know is in any given day, Heck, in any given hour, we flip-flop between those two things. So I'm a mom. The first half an hour of an hour, I could be like, oh, I just love them to death. This is great. That last half an hour, I could be like, um, what did I sign up for here? Um, am I doing this right? Uh, they going to resent me because I'm on the road all the time traveling and speaking. Uh, right? So in the same moment, you can live in two spaces. And I think people need to understand that's okay. Because when we have a tendency to think about the threat negative side of any given identity or mass we have, you know, we start to think it's just us. And then we start feeling guilt and then we start feeling shame. And then that takes us on a spiral of anxiety and stress. And, and that's not useful. <laughs> it's not useful. It impacts how happy we are. It impacts our performance on whatever we need to be focusing on. And so I try to let people know that any given mass we have or any identity we have has two different ways, you know, two different ways of going. Yeah. And it's, I would go one further is it's not necessarily that it has to flip flop is that they can exist at the same time, right? They can exist at the same time and that that dissonance like matters and you have to be aware of it and have a peace about it because you can't spend time saying, Oh, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel bad about this? Well, heck, like it's just the human experience, like man up, woman up. And then now let's strategize that you don't feel so bad the next time this happens, but this is going to continue to happen. And I think because we don't always like to talk about our deficiencies, we keep a lot on the inside. And what that does, it just makes us still think there's something wrong with us instead of understanding that like it's an experience everybody's having. 
Yeah, I think one of the richest ways in which this comes up is actually in parents. So um, I don't have kids, but I've worked with a lot of creative women who can get super frustrated about um, how hard it is to be an adult mom, right? And like, I got my thing I want to do, but I've got these kids. And they don't want to say the natural thing that people would say is that it's really frustrating, right? It's really, and so they end up building up a lot of resentment, unprocessed resentment, because they can't say, I am an adult that has my own sort of my own wishes. Right. Um, and I also love my kids at the same time. Like you can have both of those feelings be true, you know? Exactly. And, you know, society has a bunch of stigmas. I mean, like, we live our lives trying to avoid the stigma. There's a term called stereotype threat, identity threat, where you have a fear of confirming a negative stereotype. And so we all live that in some way, shape, or form. And in our society, just sticking to the mother metaphor right now, being a mother is supposed to be like pampers and tissue commercials, right? We're just supposed to smile and be happy and smile and be happy and blush, right? Um, When that's not always the experience. And so when you're counter to the expectation or you really take in that stigma, it can create a situation where you're just living constantly frustrated. And so for me, you know, I have those moments, but I really try hard to not allow it to get to me. And that's what I coach people to do also. Like, yes, it's happening. Yes, it's a reality. But what do you do to push through it when those moments come? Yeah, well, it seems like a mask would it has several effects like if we can wearing it we can wear a mask and it provides emotional release for us right right or we can wear a mask and it actually um creates emotional pressure for us right um, or both at the same time <laughs> or both at the same time right uh it's just you know pressure release on different on different exactly. levels, right and you know, I would say um, that that's what affects our positivity and productivity and things like that. So, you know, as far as the coaching and sort of strategies goes, how how might we go about really analyzing the mask that we're wearing and whether it's the right mask, right, for us at that time? Or the moment. Okay, mm-hmm. so the, there's two things, three things, really, that we have to do. We have to be aware on three different levels, right? So we have to have a sense of self-awareness right? Then we have to have a sense of social awareness, meaning what's going on in my social relationships and interactions. Then third, we have to have environmental awareness. What are the expectations and what's going on in the environment that I'm in? So those are three levels of focus that we always have to have. Now that's hard, right? Because we're already trying to focus on whatever the heck we're doing in that moment. And now I'm saying, yeah, there needs to be this sub-level of thinking where you're assessing all of these different things. But the reason that that assessment so important is because that's those are the data points that's going to help you figure out what's best to do in that given moment um so definitely those three levels of awareness next i would there's four things i'd say people really need to focus on one being back to being self-aware two being competent see so much of what we experience is like am i doing it right I mean, it's basically just like when we were kids, right? We look for validation. We look for affirmation from people. Am I doing it right? And in the am I doing it right, if we can make sure we're all as competent and capable as we can be, then that at least eliminates that question, right? So now if there's any weird stuff going on, we can really attribute it to just some of the other stuff versus no, you just kind of suck right now, right? Like (laughs) nobody wants to, um, you know, feel that. So then the third thing would be authenticity right? And really figuring out what authenticity means for you. A lot of times people will say, what does it mean to be authentic? 
And I said, oh, you know, be myself all the time. And I said, well, I have another definition. The definition that I have for authenticity is be having a piece about all of the different parts of who you are and knowing how and when to present certain parts, right? So it isn't this idea of, I'm just going to bring 100% of me to the table all the time, 365, 24-7. That's not good, right? <laughs> because that awareness piece, you know, is critical. Because there's certain environments where if I'm talking with my girlfriends, that level of language won't be appropriate in this context. or won't be appropriate if I'm speaking with a colleague or if I'm at a conference, right? And it's also when one would align where you could be more parts of yourself than others. But in most situations, it's about having a piece about it. And when people begin to feel like who they're bringing to the table is not true or aligned or even a real part of them, that's the problem. It's not about having to conceal certain parts. It's about when you feel like you're presenting a part that just truly isn't core to who you are. Absolutely. And was that three or four? Was there a fourth one that I missed? Oh, yeah. So what did we say? We said self-awareness. Self-awareness. Confidence. Confidence. Authenticity. Oh, yep. The fourth one, resilience. Okay. Resilience is the other one because we feel weakened when we feel threatened. Right. And if we feel weakened when we feel threatened, then we can stay weak if we're not aware of how that threat is operating. Right. And so having a sense of resilience. And when I talk about resilience, I always talk about the ability to stretch because we sometimes think that we've hit our capability of, of resilience when really we have to say no self, there's more room to push. And where I notice a lot of people when they start feeling um, negative about their position in life, it's because they think they have no more stretch. And I think it's just really important for us all to know. And I use language of, you know, we're strong by design. Like, we're humans. We're adaptive. Like, no matter what your spiritual orientation is, like, we're here and we're complex and we're cool humans. And we were built to withstand. And I think that sometimes people just need that reminder that we're built to withstand. Absolutely. Your last point about resilience makes me think of a quote from William James that I was reading earlier today. It's that I'm a paraphrase because I hadn't prepped for it, but it's most people have not gone far enough on their first win to realize or to kick into the second wind. Right. Right. right? And I it's love one, that. Yeah. And, and I wanted to dial back a little bit because your piece about authenticity is something that comes up so much, especially, um, you know, in the blogosphere and then thought leaders and, and, and creatives, it comes up like just going to be authentic. And I agree with you that it's not about like pulling up, like, I don't care what's in your underwear. Like, I don't, you know, I don't care about some of the details of what's going on. I don't need all of those parts of you, right? We need the relevant parts. But I think a lot of people confuse transparency, which is being like, whatever's on my mind, I'm going to say it from the top of the dome. Like, <laughs> This, you know, um, that's not, not the place, right? Um, yeah. And versus, like, as you said, I love the way you put it of um, using the right mask at the right time and being okay and at peace with the other mask that you have on. Right. And, you know, there's this balance between transparency and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, because I think what we're really talking about when we're talking about acknowledging and being aware of the mask we have, it's really about be being vulnerable enough to own it. But like you said, transparency can go wrong really quick. <laughs> but in most situations, being vulnerable, as long as you're vulnerable with the right people at the right times, vulnerability really doesn't have a lot of negative outcomes. You know, there's really, you know, a strong upside on vulnerability, but transparency can go 
really wrong. I teach millennials every day. <laughs> and I have seen transparency go really wrong. You know, I'm the young, cool professor that everybody loves. And I talk to them about everything, you know, from A to Z. But even in my A to Z, they should be clear. There's certain conversations you just kind of don't have with your professor in the semester that they're teaching you, right? <laughs> so um, when we think about transparency, and that's the same thing for people that work in careers. Like everyone doesn't need to know everything you're doing because what you then allow people to do is create their own storyline. And if people build the wrong storyline about you based off of these random little factoids they have, now you've jeopardized yourself for no reason. And this may sound pretty crass, but at the end of the day, most people just don't care. Most people just don't care about the big things in your life, more or less the like minutia of your life. And so I think people just need to be clear that when we're talking about being authentic, it's not this like everything out on the table, this is who I am, take it or leave it kind of mentality. Um, because that could just be a really toxic path to go down. Yeah, it's really toxic. And, you know, take myself, at, you know, as an example, like I've got a military background, mm -hmm. um, I've got a philosophical background, and I've got an entrepreneur background. There's other backgrounds that are in there, sports, and you <laughs> put all those in there. Like, and there are certain times in certain places, um, for instance, in academic circles where I know, you know, to be very careful about how much of my military background I'd be at because it's it right. general is hostile to academia tends to be hostile towards the military industrial complex and all that type of whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I know I want to downplay that a little bit. You right. Know, maybe amp up the, the philosopher mask a bit because mm -hmm. they're, they're amenable to that. But right. in other circumstances, like when I was in the army at the same time, I was like, you know what, maybe dial down the, the philosopher a little bit, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because we got to get stuff done. We don't have time to think about it, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> And so, I mean, it's, it's always this sort of, you know, I think about it in some ways. We can think in terms of mask, and I think that's a brilliant way too, but we can also think about it like knobs on a stereo or something like that. It's mm -hmm. like you can dial, dial, it up, one, down. dial it up, oh, oh, dial it back down. Mm -hmm. Like not appropriate, not the right context, you know? Right. And it goes to this whole idea of like emotional intensity, right? Certain things are just more intense than others. So, for example, I have a really big personality. And I don't think it was probably until I hit my 30s where I realized that that's not everybody's cup of tea. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to not have my big personality, but what it does mean is that, okay, maybe in certain environments, instead of being the person to talk in minute two, maybe I give it till minute six or seven, right? To let other people have some space or, okay, maybe I'm the person that's all up in everybody's business because I'm a coach and I feel like I can fix everybody. Maybe I'll give it, till that third lunch meeting or coffee meeting to go there instead of in meeting one, right? And so that's personal growth that I've had to do. Um, so I think that, you know, through life, it's definitely a learning process of figuring out what parts of you when need to be dialed down. But I'm a firm believer, firm, firm believer in not eliminating parts of who you are, right? Just in order to conform. Because my, my light shines bright. And if it's an environment that can't take my light, then there needs to be another environment. And that's the way that I approach it, especially when I know that I'm good and positive and my intentions are solid, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think people need always try to focus on, let me take that away so they don't see that part of me. But if I ever had to be an introverted, quiet, shy person, that's an environment I would not live in because I would feel suffocated. And I think what we see right now, especially in the workplace with the work I do in corporate, there's a lot of people that just feel suffocated. Because the expectations of the environment that they're in is counter to who they are, like, at the core. And I think people need to start back to that awareness piece, right? Have Do some environmental awareness and some financial planning to figure out an exit strategy 
for some of the environments and spaces that they're in because I think there's people living in toxic spaces, which is why they're feeling so emotionally and mentally toxic themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing about this, I think, Tara, because like it's the two easiest thing to change when you really get down to it, mm-hmm. who your friends are and the environments in which you correspond with people. Yeah. Those are, I mean, of all the masks you get, those are the ones and all the things that you get, those are the ones that are most malleable. They are. Um, and and I think they're also the most emotionally charged too. Exactly. They're the most malleable and emotionally charged. And so a lot of times people, you know, and I've seen people there who really work on, you know, their own mask and changing who they are and so on and so right. forth. I'm like maybe like the friends that you have aren't the friends that are right for you. Right. Maybe right. the, the, the social circumstances you find yourself in aren't the ones that are going to be conducive to your thriving. So rather exactly. than conforming to those um, systems, rather than conforming mm-hmm. to those expectations, how about you find other networks, other people who are going to be like, you know what? I love that a tear is loud. I, I love, like, I love that. I grew up with that. I miss that sometimes, you know, it's like, come right. on, like we might not go to Starbucks cause it's going to get loud, but that's okay. Right. Right. Um, and so, your friend networks are the most malleable, also mm-hmm. most emotionally charged, but also your environments, the, the, the physical spaces and your work are one of those easier things to change. It is. It is. But, you know, people, people feel so bound, Charlie. Like when I, so with the mask project, we've collected over 1000 narratives so far of people's experience of wearing the mask in life and at work and stuff. And we have, it originally started with professional women of color and now it's co-ed multicultural, um, and so when we think about people feeling bound, literally there's times where my husband's like, um, could you close the computer and start reading the narratives? Cause I get so like wrapped up in it. It's like its own screenplay. Um, and so the biggest thing that keeps pulling me in is how bound people feel. Right. And I think that people just need to really understand that they can utilize their agency and their freedom more than they think they can. And I think we're raised to kind of fall in line with expectations and social norms, which is important to a certain extent, but there is a certain level of disruption that's important. You know, we talk about, you know, disruption in regard to innovation and technology and that type of thing. But I think that we all need to get a little bit more disruptive in our social and workspaces, especially when it's related to advocating for ourselves and using our own voices. Now, I'm not saying bust up in a meeting and kick the door in and let everybody know how you feel and take it or leave it. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that we need to be a little strategic about the ways in which we can disrupt. And I think that people will have a little bit more affirmation about themselves when they realize that after they disrupt, there's still positive outcomes at the end. People think there's so many risks to being yourself or being, you know, socially disruptive, but I think that once people do it and it's like, oh, they took that. Oh, they ate that. You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening are entrepreneurs. It's like when you give somebody a quote, right? For, you know, a curriculum, a speaking fee, a client project, you give the quote and part of, and it's one of those moments where you, you know, you're transitioning your price up a little bit or you're feeling a little bold that day. You know, you kind of type that number in and you send, press send and you're just sitting there waiting like, okay, okay, are they going to say no? Are they going to think I'm crazy? Then you get that email back like, oh, sure, sounds good. Okay, let's talk next week. And so we have to feel bold enough to do some of those things to kind of, you know, affirm ourselves to know that it's okay. 
Yeah, and I, and I would say on this disruption piece and on this change piece, I think because people feel so bound and so backlogged and log jammed, mm-hmm. like when it's time to move, it's like, I'm doing everything all at once, right? Right. <laughs> As opposed to really some of the best disruptions happen like step by step by step. And it's one of those things where like, you know, if, if you were with the same group of people and let's say you wanted to like dye your hair purple, right? Which would be crazy in some places. <laughs> then it'd be normal. It'd be like dye it back brown, you know? Exactly. Um, but it, it would be like, if you dyed it just a little tint, I'm not saying you should do this, but if you just dyed it just a little bit every day, over about six months, it would be purple, but no one would never notice, right? Until that one person come in and is like, yo, why, why is it here? I got purple hair. What's that about, right? <laughs> Everybody be like, she's got, oh, she's got purple hair, right? And so it's one of those things to where, I, I know that's a silly example, but actually, like, as changes start happening like that, you can creep a little bit in and creep a little bit in and creep a little bit in and play that long game when it comes to really wearing the mask that, that are um, most in line with your values and priorities, you know? Exactly. You know, I always tell people like masks are not simply to hide and conceal because a lot of times, you know, you see a blip or you see an article I wrote and it just kind of says, oh, the mask we wear. And sometimes, you know, the person who's writing the piece will frame it in this, oh, it's a negative thing. And I always correct them on the edit and say, hold on, hold on. That's like, that's not my stance. I am not the, oh, a mask is a bad thing that simply hides and conceals. A mask is a human reality connected to the identities that we have. And it's about when to wear which ones. It is not about it simply being this boogeyman of ourselves that, you know, that we present to the world. So yeah, that's a good point you make. So you mentioned entrepreneurs and creativity and just some of the tendencies that we have. And, uh-huh. you know, as high achieving creatives and entrepreneurs, we, we like, we create these Jacob ladder scenarios. Like we can never going to get to the top and it's an insatiable sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, from your research and, and um, experience, what are some of the emotional and psychological consequences of having a creative thirst that's just never quenched? Oh gosh. So you're asking me like current, emotional battle right now. Um, <laughs> you know, the, to go back to language you used about insatiability. When you know you can be great and do great things, I think that insatiability is just in a constant. But the question becomes, how do you allow that constant not to have a negative impact? And um, one of the biggest things that I talk about with all my fellow creatives and entrepreneurs right now is when is enough enough? Or how do we reprioritize? But I know for me, the biggest thing that I focus on is understanding that there is not a rush, right? So it's this idea of, you know, time is going to run out. And if I don't do this now, and if I don't make this cold call now, and if I don't get this lead, and if I don't release this podcast tomorrow, and if I don't do this, and if I don't get this piece to this, you know, um, website, and if I don't get my students on this project, because that's data I can use for this. And And so I think about my December, I swear I felt psychotic because I was creating my plan for 2016. And then I looked at it and I was like, why did I put everything in quarter one? (laughs) Like why is quarter one loaded with every goal I have for 2016? And I didn't realize that probably until about week two of January that this was not going to work. And then not only was it not going to work, but it didn't have to work. Right. There's nothing wrong with taking those 10 things I want to do in 2016 and actually like evenly dividing them across the quarter, you know, <laughs> just that little common sense thing that I could have done. But what I had to do was I had to do a reshift. 
right? And so I reshift and I said, okay, Tara, you have like 10,000 speaking engagements. You have a semester with a lot of classes. You have these deliverables you need for these clients. Um, maybe you launch the podcast quarter two or three, right? <laughs> and kind of do what's on the table. And I think the other side of it for me is we're so eager for what's next that we don't always pay attention to what's in hand, mm-hmm. right? So there's just certain leads, for example, that I have now that I need to put 1000% attention to instead of like, oh, I'll deal with them and then let me try to get some more. And so that insatiability, I think, can turn into greed. And I don't mean financial greed. I just mean like, it can be like a drug and any creative entrepreneur knows that. It's like, it's a chase. You know, I've been with my husband since I was 18, so I don't have romantic chases. But I do know the chase of the entrepreneurial high. And just like anything, too much of anything is just a problem. Yeah, too much ice cream is a bad thing. It's a bad thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you, that you mentioned this because I think part of it is when you slow down mm-hmm. and, and you take sort of slow, deep creativity and you go with that. Um, we, it, it, one of the major challenges is that we live in such a um, on-demand sort of instant feedback world. Right. When you start doing your best work, when you start doing the things that matter most, you might mm-hmm. be working on that six months before somebody sees it, right? And then it's like, or, you know, you could take a picture of your dinner and then see what people like, like on Instagram, right? <laughs> and I think we've wired ourselves, we've sort of um, gotten to the place as, as where we are with technology and expectations that like mm-hmm. we have forgotten the value of sitting down and working on something for a long time. Right. And, and right, because we have this instant gratification thing. Like I have four year old twin boys. And when we take pictures, the first thing they say is mommy, let me see. No, mommy, take another one. No, wait, let me see that one. You know, whereas when we were younger, like a picture was taken and we waited till it was developed weeks later when someone got to taking it to the pharmacy to get it done. Like, whereas they see it and they want instantly to evaluate it, instantly to know. My daughter will say, I'll post a picture. She'll be like, oh, how many likes did we get on the picture? And that's not language I use, but she's in a world where it's like you post it for people to look at it. So therefore people are going to click like so. You know, and um, yeah, so that instant gratification piece, I think, is something that could really drive us all a little batty if we don't. Yeah, and and pursuant to our conversation, it's the instant gratification that's sort of you know dialing up different masks and dialing up the ways uh-huh. that you see things. It's like, oh, what it means to wear this mask is that people approve of it in certain ways, and people like it, and and you know, tell me that it's awesome in certain ways. And if you wear a mask and you don't get the likes, like oh, that's not a cool one. That's not something I should be wearing. Like, we just don't know how to wear it like feedbackless mask anymore. Exactly. And then you keep switching it up. But what the problem with that is if you keep switching it up, now people don't know who you are truly. Now you don't know who you are. Um, I mean, I follow a lot of different thought leaders and speakers and media people online. And there's some that you could tell it's like, okay, that rebranding wasn't quite rebranding. Like that was like going a whole nother direction. Like I'm a different person this year than last year, you know, versus rebranding or switching up the vibe of who you truly are. And I think that we have to be careful of making sure that we're staying true to the work that we do and not changing it up just to satisfy other people. Now that's a difficult thing to do when satisfying customers and consumers um, and the people who care about your influence level 
can be money, right? Because when you're talking about having a business, you want people to like what you're creating. So there's this supply demand thing, but you also just kind of have to stay core to your lane. There's so many times people come and say, oh, could you come speak at this? And I'm like, tell me more about the event. And I'm like, eh, not quite my speed, right? And not because I can't do it, but because I think that can send confused messaging. And I want to make a reactive move to do that. Like I get invited to speak at churches all the time, right? And, you know, I believe in God. I'm a spiritual person, all of that. But I'm not ready to make a claim that I am in that ministry or that I am a preacher. And all it could take is me speaking at one mega church. And now back to that other defined versus self-defined. Now everyone says, oh, Dr. Charles is a, um, you know, minister and she's a speaker in the spiritual space. And now she's, and it's like, wait, 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 no, no. Like, <laughs> that's not what I'm claiming to be because there are people in that lane that do it well and like it works. I don't know if it works for me yet. So I'm not going to claim that as a branding thing. And so it's really, you have to be real careful about where you plant your feet so that, you know, you can stay authentic to who you are and not misrepresent. I'm really careful about misrepresenting myself. Yeah, well, I mean, given who you are and, and, and what it takes to be you in the world, like that's one of the, the things that people don't understand sometimes about being a person of color yeah. in certain professions is like you have to be hyper present about how you're being perceived. Right. Because, you know, you mentioned it earlier, you don't want to misrepresent a class of people and you're like, maybe I would just like to be myself, you know, <laughs> maybe exactly. I want to be a class of people, be a representative for a class of people. But then there's also the fact that I'll say this just kind of connected to my own thing in any, so there are certain identities that we have that no matter what space we're in are who we are right in certain masks we wear. So being a black educated woman, those are three things. It doesn't matter if I'm at, a Fortune 500 executive board meeting. It doesn't matter if I'm at a event for black women. It doesn't matter if I'm at an event for young white millennials. It doesn't matter if I'm at a church. I am always a tier of the young black educated woman. And so those three masks or identities for me are non-wavering. And what I've noticed when I speak with people is that people aren't sure of what their non-wavering identities are. And I think when you aren't sure of what your non-wavering identities are, it's very easy to kind of move around and try to figure out what do they want here? What do they want there? So if someone doesn't want a young, black, educated woman, then they don't want Dr. Tira Charles. And I make that very clear, especially doing diversity work and mm-hmm. self-help work. It's important for people to be clear that that's my position in this universe. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, and absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's what you have to look at is um, like potential mass conflict as well, because yeah. if you were Dr. Atira Charles, the, the speaker for evangelical churches on mask and so on and so forth, that might conflict with your academic mask. Right. And the, rig- and yeah. the rigor of, I mean, it could, could not. Right. So right. That, that's yeah. the other thing that you have to look at is like, how do you, how, you know, I learned very early, not very early, I learned in my twenties that some of the masks that I had were more compatible than others. Right. And combinations of masks are more aligned with each other. Exactly. Exactly. And so that, that's part of what's going on there. Um, Mm -hmm. what, what I'll say about, um, we've, we've gone a little bit further, further a stream on sort of the, the creative life. But what I'll say is the other thing is if you're in that sort of like, um, 
you know, that, that insatiable, like I got to do everything now, just be very clear about the manufactured urgency that you're creating for yourself, right? There's certain urgencies that happen, but then there's urgency that you manufacture, right? And that will drive you crazy. So totally, it totally will. And I think that that comes from those external, those external pressures, right? Like what needs to be done? Who's doing what it could be. And we're all guilty of it. I could be online and see somebody launch something and I'm like, Oh man, I was supposed to launch that thing this month. And now this person launched it. And it's not about competition. It's just about like assessing the field, right? Like, okay, now is this person going to get this because they launched it earlier? And then what? Oh, let me. And then you just start focusing on whatever your emotions are making you focus on that day. It's not even like good strategy. It's just kind of like, all right, well, let me cold call 10 people today. Like, (laughs) and so um, that's one of the things for me that I make sure I check myself on Mm -hmm. uh, not feeling like I'm behind in a race. I know that's one of my like triggers, right? If I feel like I'm behind, I feel like I gotta catch up. And um, I think most creatives and entrepreneurs are like that, but it needs to be purposeful and functional. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My way of handling that is just to assess that I'm, I'm never going to be caught up. I'm always going to be behind and behind in that sort of negative, like, Oh my God. I'm, it's like, there's always somebody doing great work around the world. I'm, always. And when you accept that there's some degrees in which you're always going to be behind, you can say, okay, where am I? And what's my right next step? as opposed to how do I need to try to catch up and do something different, you know? Right. And also having a piece about where your stage is, right? Because we have a tendency, of course, to be aspirational. So we have a tendency to pay a lot of attention to the people who are doing what we want to do or walking in the lane we want to walk in, but all comparisons are not equal. <laughs> I can't sit here and say, oh man, Oprah just recorded another Super Soul Sessions. Oh, I'm behind. Uh, No, I'm not behind. Oprah's Oprah, right? (laughs) So we have to be careful about our modes of comparison. I can't be like, oh man, I didn't launch that digital course. Now I'm behind Oprah. Like, of course I am. Like, I'll always be in some way. You get what I mean? Yeah, I do. Be clear about our comparison. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, to be a creative entrepreneur is to be functionally delusional. I mean, it just really is because you have to believe that you're going to be that person that's successful, but you got to be functional enough that you're not just all the time crazy, right? So there's delusion with some functionality in there and, you know, that's living the dream. And you have to do the work, right? Like there's the work you're working on. It cannot just be dreaming about the potential of what you want to do or be or the impact or influence that you want to have. It really has to be work being done to get there. And I talk with some of my mentees and it's like, they have all these ideas and dreams. And I'm like, we're four meetings in and you're still in idea stage. Like, did you write something down? Did you send me an email with a document? Like, what's the action piece on this? We're not going to just sit here talking and dreaming. Like, let's get to action. Um, so I always push people in that direction of you can be, like you said, functionally delusional, but have some tasks attached to the delusion that you do have. <laughs> Atira, if we talk, if we really started riffing about doing the work, I'm afraid we would not get off the call. We probably would. <laughs> but probably. yeah, absolutely. Um, you got to do the work and you have a bias for action, right? It's great mm-hmm. to have a bias for thought, but it's even better to have a bias for action. Exactly. Or else you'll still, like here we are saying we're successful creatives, successful entrepreneurs, and we're still saying we feel this way. For the people who are just starting off, you'll feel that way too. But if you're not doing the work, you'll feel that way worse. Because you won't even have the moments for the wins. So you have to act 
and do so that you can get some wins to make sense of the madness. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing more soul crushing. Well, there's a few things. There are a few things, but I'll just put it this way. Creative constipation is soul crushing. Like when you have all those ideas oh rolling around and you can't get them through you, it's a thing, yeah. folks. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's uh, a thing because you feel like you're going to combust. You feel like you're going to combust and then it goes back to that, like putting everything on quarter one, right? Cause you're like, I got all this out in my head. I got to put it all out there. Like you can't write 10 books in one month. You can't write, you like, <laughs> there's only certain people that can do that. Right. And that's just not the norm. And so you're not going to get everything out. And I think one of the things that helps me is understanding I have a lifetime to do what I want to do. Yeah. My lifetime, maybe a day, month, or 50-something years, hopefully 100, right, with medicine and science. But <laughs> we have to understand that there's time, you know. Time is our friend, not our enemy. And I think it's very easy for creatives and entrepreneurs to get caught up in the time as our enemy. Yep, time is your friend. Um, it, well, time can be your friend. Yeah, <laughs> right. unless you're just procrastinating. Unless you're just procrastinating, and then that's another. That's a whole other topic for another <laughs> for another episode. Um, I'm curious, we've mentioned a lot of challenges. So what's the most unanticipated challenge you're currently facing in your career? Hmm. The biggest challenge that I'm having. The unanticipated one. Oh, unanticipated. Hmm. That's a good question. I think that the biggest unanticipated challenge that I could have is straddling so like different industries, right? So I have my foot in academia, I have my foot in media stuff, I have my foot in business consulting, I have my foot in speaking space. And those don't always align, right? There's but so much time and they include travel and how do I do that? And then of course that whole family thing, right? And so <laughs> um, keeping my foot in all those spaces and making sure that I'm not dropping the ball and that I'm giving my all to all spaces. Um, for example, you know, I got a call about doing something related to a reality TV show, but I wasn't really into the, I'll say vision of the show. <laughs> and so while I do have an aspiration to be on TV and use my influence that way, that wasn't the right way. But of course, like you said, that creative constipation is like, oh man, do I just need to get this out and do this and see where it goes? But that goes back to being clear on where you're grounded. So for me, even though that is a challenge that I think is going to start manifesting more, having to say no to certain things when... I'm in a growth stage where I want to say yes to everything, really having to like strategically say no about certain things. Yeah. That's, I think that's a hard lesson that you can be good at a lot of things, mm -hmm. but best at only a few. Right. Right. And once you start reaching the level where you are like that, yeah, I, I feel that pain. <laughs> All righty, Dr. C, if people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away from this episode? The one thing I would want everybody to take away is that while you are complex as a person, you're also very simple. And I think that if we can own our simplicity, it'll help us like figure life out better. Um, you know, like I said, humans are very complicated, but we're very simple in regard to how we react and respond. And if we can figure out our patterns, we can understand ourselves better. 
So own your simplicity. I think there's this social narrative of, oh, we're complex and we're complicated. It's all this stuff. But if you really dig down, we're really simple. And I think we just need to all come in touch with our simplicity and that'll help us manage all those different masks more effectively. Hatira, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it and look forward to collaborating or engaging in the future in some way. Alrighty, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Dr. Atira Charles. We are simple creatures at root. What are the masks that define you in a positive way that help you be productive and happy and um, instantiating the way that you want to be in the world? And which of those might need to be dialed down just a little so that you can find that simple way of being in the world? And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.